We're going to take a look today at the book of Esther. Very interesting book. The 17th book in the Old Testament. Number 17. What I learned in vacation Bible school was that it's the 17th book of history in the Old Testament. Genesis through Esther. Now, here's the way it starts off. Okay? Esther. By the way, if you have your Bible, you certainly want to follow along with me, and I'm going to be going through, you know, Andy usually does five or six verses, and I'm going to do nine chapters here today. <laughs> so that's a challenge. That's a challenge. So if you have your Bible, you'll certainly want to follow along. But if I look at chapter one, verse one, it says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. That's from India to Africa, to Ethiopia. So, great empire, the Persian Empire. Now, I've included this timeline just to kind of give you an idea of the setting, the historical setting of this book. If we start with what we're most familiar with, perhaps, the fall of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity, 586 B.C. In 539 B.C., the Persians, under Cyrus the Great, conquered Babylon, and they became the dominant empire of the world, replacing Babylon. Cyrus, you remember, when he took over, gave a decree that is recorded in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, giving the Jews permission to return to their homeland. They had been living in captivity. And about 50,000 of them returned under the leadership of the rubble. Their purpose primarily was to rebuild the temple and, of course, resettle Jerusalem. They finished the rebuilding of the temple in 516 B.C. Oh, we can't go into the details that delayed that process, but that's very interesting, too. Now, the reign of Xerxes, this Xerxes we're talking about, 486 to 465 B.C. That's about 20 years that he reigned. And it's during this time that the events in the book of Esther took place. Now, after this time, I have noted that in 458 B.C., and these years may be all one or two years there, but Ezra led a return to Jerusalem, but it was a much smaller number than under Zerubbabel. The major return, as far as people were concerned, was the Zerubbabel return. In 445 B.C., you will remember that Nehemiah, led a group back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and basically to rebuild the city. And with that, you pretty well come to the end of Old Testament history. And the Persians continued to rule. As a matter of fact, the Jews lived under Persian rule for 200 years until the conquest of Alexander the Great about 330 B.C., when the Greeks took over. 
And the Greeks ruled over the Jews for, well, not quite 200 years. And then came the Romans, and then eventually came the New Testament. But if we could just kind of stay in that period between 486 and 465. Now, this Xerxes is obviously the most powerful man in the world of that time. 127 provinces, it said. He was a dominant world ruler. Uh, there was no match for him anywhere in that, uh, in that world. Now, in my discussion of the book of Esther, I have chosen to sort of look at the characters. And I've characterized Xerxes with the words, the abuse of power. He was a powerful man, and he abused that power. He was in control of everything. When he gave orders, uh, they had to be carried out. Now, nowhere is his abuse of power more noticeable than in his relationship to women. And that's kind of appropriate to our day when we're talking about this being the Me Too culture, the Me Too generation that we're into. Now, you talk about a man who dominated the female population and who took advantage of women, Xerxes one. It is said that he probably had a woman for every day of the year. And that, uh, you know, he ruled from Susa, which is the capital city of Persia. Well, it's one of four capitals. In every one of those capitals, he would have had a harem. And so these women were always at his pleasure and at his command, and he removed them and uh, brought them in whenever he wanted to. Uh, so that is to say that he took advantage of his position and certainly abused his power. Now we're told there in that first chapter that what he did was to have a great banquet that lasted for six months, a gathering that lasted for six months. I call this a world's fair type of event. In other words, people, noblemen came in from all of these provinces and they stayed there for six months. Now I'm not going to read every verse here, but if you want to get an idea of just how luxuriously he lived, you read the description of the gardens in which they met and had in the last seven days of that six months a banquet in which they ate whatever they wanted and drank whatever they wanted. It lasted for seven days. At the end of the seven days, when everyone had drunk to the point where they were, as it says, high in spirits, that means they were drunk. Uh, Xerxes decides to give the order for his queen, he does have one queen at the top, Vashti, to come in and to show off her beauty, to wear her royal crown. I don't know whether it was the only thing he wanted to wear or not, but anyway, to come in and show off her beauty. Now, this pagan woman has a conscience. And
And so she says, no, I'm not coming in. She refuses to display herself before this lewd, drunken group of men. Now, when she does that, Xerxes is very, very upset. He is very, very angry. But I have noticed, uh, I'm characterized vastly by the words, the beauty of modesty. She was a beautiful woman, but her modesty is really what shines forth here. You know, I have grieved over the scandal that my alma mater, Baylor University, you know about that, you know, sexual abuse scandal and so forth. And I'm going to say that it is my conviction that a man never has an excuse to take advantage of a woman, okay? Never, 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 never. But as I read about one of those incidents, I read, well, here are some Baylor students, men and women, gathered in a local establishment there, having a party and drinking, not iced tea, like we're drinking here today. Can you believe it? Baylor students, okay. Now, as this party goes along, one of these guys invites one of these girls to go to his apartment with him. Oh, and she consents, and she goes, what are they going to do, pay checkers? <laughs> so that's where one of these encounters takes place. Now I just want to say that Vashti wouldn't have done that. She wouldn't have gone there. She would have said no. Now you can take from that uh, whatever is appropriate. But okay, Vashti has to be deposed. She has to be removed. I mean, Xerxes' advisors say to him, if you let her get away with this, all the women in Persia will disrespect their husbands. They will not obey their husbands. So he issues a decree, deposing her, removing her from that place. And this decree basically says, I've been talking to Jean about this, my wife that is, and this is in the Bible, by the way. The decree of Cyrus says basically two things. And if you look uh, there in verse, uh, oh, about 20 or so, here's one part of the decree. All the women of Persia will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Now, the second part of that decree, the last words in that chapter 1, that every man should be ruler over his own household. Now, my wife sort of corrected the way I was saying that when I read it to her, so you'll understand that we, that we have an agreement about that. Anyway, uh, now, Vashti has been removed, so we've got to have a new queen. And so what are we going to do to get a new queen? Well, basically, we're going to have a meeting on this. From all over the empire, from India to Kush, in all these provinces, the most beautiful women are to be selected and brought in, and they're going through 12 months of beauty treatments. What could you do 
that uh, is the most desirable and beautiful will be the new queen in place of Vashti. Now here we are introduced to a man who stands out in this book. His name is Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew. He is one of those, or at least he is the family, from those who were transported into captivity. But he has settled in during Persia. You see, most of the Jews never returned from captivity. They spread out all over the Eastern world. And there were many of them living in Persia, many of them living in Susa, which was that capital where Xerxes was. That was really his sort of winter palace, by the way. There were four capitals. Four capitals. I mentioned that before. And they went from place to place. And you, you remember Saddam Hussein. He had several palaces throughout the country where he went from time to time, moved around. And it says the same kind of thing we have here with this. But this Mordecai is identified as a Jew. As a matter of fact, uh, he seems to be a descendant of Kish. You better remember that Kish was the father of Saul. So this may mean that Mordecai has some royal blood in him. Now, Mordecai, and uh, this is uh, verse 7, I believe, of chapter 2. It says, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. So he had raised her. This girl was also known as Esther, which is her Persian name. Hadassah is her Jewish name. You may remember that Joe Lieberman, who was a candidate for vice president's wife, his name was Hadassah. So that's a common Jewish name. But of Esther, it says here, she was lovely in form and features. And she was a looker. And Mordecai had taken care of her like she was his own daughter. Okay? Now, so when the king gave this order for all the beauties to be brought in, Esther was one of those who came in. She had never identified herself as a Jew because Mordecai told her not to. But she comes in and she goes through this treatment with the others. And eventually she, as you would know, is the one who is selected to be the queen. As a matter of fact, uh, there in verse 17 of chapter 2, it says, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. So she has the top place in the harem or the harems of this king Xerxes. Now, this having been done, uh, there's an incident that takes place here at the end of chapter 2 concerning Mordecai. He is sitting at the king's gate. Now, if you can think of the citadel of Susa, 
which was an inner part of the city, wall around it, gates, splendid palace back there. And so there were those at the gate who had responsibility. Mordecai was sort of an attendant. I don't know exactly what his job was, but uh, uh, he checked the credentials, perhaps, of people who came in through the gate of the citadel. And so he would sit there. Apparently he had, he had a desk and, and uh, he worked there. He did his thing there. Uh, he had become somewhat successful, obviously, in this land. Now then, one day, in that position, people milling around the gate to the citadel, to the palace, eventually, he overhears two men plotting to assassinate Xerxes, the king of Persia. Well, he reports this to Esther, who is now the queen, and Esther gets this word into Xerxes, and it is recorded in the records, the chronicles of Xerxes. But it doesn't get his attention at that time. He doesn't really, uh, he doesn't really notice it uh, that much. But uh, it turns out that this is a pretty important incident. Now in chapter 3, okay, we've met Xerxes and talked about his abuse of power. Uh, we have met Vashti and talked about her beauty of modesty. Now then we meet the fifth character here, whose name is Haman, and he is the villain in this story. No question about it. He is a proud, pompous, egotistical individual, and he shows it uh, in almost everything that he does. He is identified as the son of Hamadatha and Agagite. Mm, gee, that opens up the door that I dare not go through today because he may be a descendant or related to the Amalekites who are the ancient uh, enemies of Israel. Now, Xerxes promotes him to the highest position there is under his rule, of course. And at the same time, he gives orders that wherever Haman goes, people should show respect. They should bow down. They should kneel down. They should honor him. And so, in the afternoon, five o'clock, when the whistle blows, the work day is ended, he goes out of the gate. And those who are at the gate there get up out of their seats, and they kneel down before him. That is, everybody except Mordecai. <laughs> and he will not kneel down. You know, it says, Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honor. I'll tell you where I got to here I sit. I was thinking about Martin Luther. You know, Martin Luther took a stand. You remember he was brought before the Diet of Worms to defend himself, or actually to recant what he had written about the power of the papacy, among other things that he had written. And, of course, they accuse him, and he eventually gives up, gets up to give his defense, 
And you may remember that he said, among other things, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I cannot and will not recant, hear and stand. God heaven, I cannot do otherwise. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about Mordecai. He didn't say it, but here I sit. <laughs> I'm not going to get up and bow down to you. I'm not going to kneel to you. I do not pay reverence to any man. Well, now, of course, of time, Mordecai becomes very angry. I mean, Haman becomes very angry with Mordecai. To the point, knowing that he's a Jew, because Mordecai hadn't tried to hide that about himself, knowing that he's a Jew, he determines not only to get rid of him, but also to get rid of all of the Jews in the Persian Empire. I mean, to annihilate all of the Jews. And so he, Haman, in verse 7, it says they cast the pur, P-U-R, cast the pur, uh, something like rolling the dice, you know, a way of making a decision. They cast the pur. Now let me just say right here that one of the main things about the book of Esther is that it is the background for the celebration of the Jewish Feast of Purim, which is celebrated annually, even down to the present time, in the early spring. The Feast of Purim, and it's based on that word there, the Purim. Now, he rolled the dice, let's say, and decided that on a certain day, all of the Jews were going to be annihilated. He went to the king and got his approval. As a matter of fact, he... Uh, Offered the king a great sum of money. The king said, I don't need your money. I've got plenty of money. Do whatever you want to do. I don't care. If you want to get rid of these people, then get rid of them. And so he decided to do it. And so he issued a decree. He sent out an edict. And basically, verse uh, 13 there of chapter 3, it was an order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th of the month Adar. And so this was sent out through all the provinces. Spurred on by the king's command, verse 15 says, the couriers went out, the edict was issued to the city of Susa, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Now, so Mordecai gets the word of this. And chapter 4 there in the beginning, it tells about how this grieved Mordecai. And he put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went through the streets groaning and moaning and crying out and so forth. Getting the attention of the people. Getting the attention of others. Esther heard about it. And she sent a servant down to get him some clothes. He's wearing sackcloth. Unpretentious to be sure, but not appropriate for uh, his position, perhaps. 
but also to ask him, what's the problem? What's the trouble? What can we do? Well, he sends back a word to her and sends her a copy of that edict for the annihilation of the Jews. And he also said to the servant, explain to her, this is verse 8, chapter 4, explain to her so that she will go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Well, so he goes and he tells Esther that. And here's Esther's response now in uh, verse 11. She says to Mordecai, through her messenger, all the king's officials, the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. In other words, the only way you can get in the presence of the king is to be invited. And then even includes the queen. And she says, and I haven't been invited in 30 days, it's been a month since I've been invited into his presence. So, Mordecai gets that word, he sends back. Now this is maybe the most important verse in the book. So, notice what he has to say there in verse 12. And this is Mordecai to Esther. He says, do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews would escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place, but you and your family will perish. And here's the word right here. And who knows? But that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. He's saying, girl, this is your hour. This is your opportunity. Now, I have characterized Esther there for the words, Redeeming the time. You know, that's from King James Version verse in Ephesians 5, 16, where Paul advises believers to redeem the time. To buy back the time, as it were. Meaning to take advantage of the opportunity. As he said, because the days are evil. These are threatening times. And we need to take advantage of the opportunities that we have to honor God and to serve Him and do what is best for His people. You know, I'm reminded when I think of that, the words of William Shakespeare put into the mouth of Brutus in the play Julius Caesar when he said, there's a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. Omitted all the voids of their life is bound in shallows and misery. On such a sea are we now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures. Ah, he was saying, and I won't take time to describe the circumstances. He says, if we don't do it now, we'll lose the opportunity. We can't do it. And that's what Mordecai is saying to Esther, this is why you are where you are at this particular time, so that you can represent your people and so that you can come before the king. Okay, so Esther's response is, three days fasting, fast for me for three days. 
Mordecai, all the Jews are called to three days of fasting. And when these three days are fasting, I will go into the king. And as he says it, if I perish, I perish. In other words, if he does not welcome me, then he will execute me. Okay, so in chapter 5, she goes into the king. Ah, he extends that royal scepter to her, and she touches that golden point, and she is welcomed into his presence. Something's going on here, you know. Something's going on here. And so his first thing to her, Esther, queen, what can I do for you? Up to half the kingdom, what will I do for you? Oh, I think he exaggerated a little bit, but nevertheless, you know, he is impressed. I mean, he welcomed her. But she says to him, I just want for you and Haman to come to a banquet that I'm giving tomorrow. Okay, simple request. So they contact Haman, and he is elated that the queen is inviting him to this banquet. And so he goes. And then the king asks Esther again, all I know Esther, he said, what is it you want? What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, I'll give you. She says, well, I just want for you and Haman to come to another banquet that I will prepare for tomorrow, the next day. Okay. And now Haman is really, really excited because of all others that might have been invited. He is the only one that the queen invites to come and to have this banquet uh, with, uh, together with them. And so when he goes home that day, I mean, when evening comes and he goes out the gate, he is riding in his chariot and he is lacking the I mean, he is happy, happy, happy. Until he sees Mordecai sitting over there, sitting over there, not paying attention to him, not respecting him, not reverencing him. But he goes on home and he says to his wife, you know, I've been honored so greatly. But, he said, it means nothing to me. I cannot enjoy it as long as that Haman sits there and despises me like he died. Well, his wife and uh, her attendants say to him, you got to get rid of this guy. You need to build a gallows. Seventy-five feet high. And hang him on it. Actually, it's a kind of a pole. It's uh, to impale him on it. Hey, that's worse than hanging. I mean, you know, there's no rope involved here. This is a, this is a, a, a it goes right up to you. They run it right through you. I mean, it's just a spike-like thing that they ram to you and hang it on it. So that's what he's going to do. Ah, he likes that idea. He likes that idea. Now then, in uh, chapter 6, lo and behold, okay, this is going to be the next day now. But that night, Xerxes, the king, couldn't sleep. Even kings sometimes can't go to sleep. And he rolls and he tumbles. Finally, he decides to have 
one of his servants read to him the chronicles of the king. I mean the records of what's happened and what's been said and what's been done. And they're reading along. You know, that ought to put anybody to sleep. But they're reading along there and they come to this place where Mordecai had informed them about this assassination attempt. And for the first time, he gets his attention. And he's asked to the service, what was done for this man? What was done for this man? How did we honor this man? They say, nothing. No one paid any attention to it. They did not do anything. Well, by now, it's early morning. And Haman is coming to work. And Xerxes asked the question, who's in the palace? Haman's coming in. So he goes to Haman, and he says to him, the king said, who is in the court? Okay, this is in verse 6. When Xerxes asked Haman what should be done for the man, the king delights to honor. Haman's thinking, <laughs> he wants to honor me. <laughs> He wants to do something special for me. And so Haman tells him what he ought to do. He says, for the king, for the man, this is verse 7, for the man, the king, delights to honor, how them bring a royal robe, the king has worn a horse, the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble servants. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets proclaiming before him, this is what he's done to the man the king delights to honor. Good idea, Xerxes says. Go and do this for Mordecai. Whew. He does it. I mean, he obeys the king. And he robes Mordecai puts him on his horse and <laughs> leads him to the street and shouts before him, this is the man that the king delights to honor. Oh, so, he goes home that day. He's beaten down to a pulp. And he tells his wife and his servants there, and his wife says to him, you had it. You had it. <laughs> this man is a Jew. You're never going to get there. You're never going to succeed against him. But he is going to the banquet that night. You know, he's going to the banquet. So he's going to be there at the banquet. Now this time, Xerxes asked Esther, Now Esther, what is your request? Up until half the kingdom, this is the third time, you know. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom. And so this time, she responds, in verse 3 of chapter 7, she says, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I would have kept quiet. Because no such distress would justify disturbing the kingdom. King Xerxes asked Esther, who would do such a thing? Who would carry out such a thing as this? And her answer is, 
the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman sitting here. All right. That puts the fear of God in Haman. At least it puts fear in him. The king is so angry that he gets up and walks out on the balcony. Esther's reclining there on the couch and Haman goes over to him to beg for his life. And the king comes back in and he sees that and says, what's he going to do? Well, that's the queen right here in my presence. And of course the question is, what am I going to do to this man? Well, why this servant says to him, I know he's coming to work today. There's a gallows. Seventy-five feet high. I mean, this whole spike. Seventy-five feet high. It was built for Mordecai. But the king says, hang him on it. Put Haman on it, in other words. And so, you know, I've said about uh, Haman there, pride goes before destruction. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so Haman receives the treatment that he had uh, intended for Mordecai. Now then, uh, there are a couple more chapters in this book, but the fact is I'm just about through. Let me tell you what, what we have in chapters 8 and 9. Um, the king had issued a decree that all the Jews would be annihilated. He can't change that decree. You make a decree, the means the law of the Medes and Persians cannot be changed. So he can't change that decree. But he issues another decree, giving the Jews authority to defend themselves. Well, obviously I think, it, I think that decree took the wind out of the sail of the first decree. And but still it resulted in conflict and, and death for many. Uh, but the Jews were successful, and they went out, and they celebrated the first day of Purim, the first celebration of Purim. Now, I want to read to you the very last words in chapter 10. Mordecai, this is verse 3 of chapter 10, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes. In other words, Mordecai was elevated to the place basically that Haman had occupied. And so he is second in all the land of Persia. He is preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. You know, it's interesting. When you think about it, at the height of the Persian Empire, one of the greatest, I don't, it's not the word I really want to use, but at any rate, in size and power, one of the greatest empires in human history. At the height of that empire. And by the way, during this time, they were also trying to extend their domination over Greece, which they never quite could accomplish. And eventually they, of course, were subdued by Alexander the Great and his conquest, but that's more than a century later from where we are right now. 
But at the height of the Persian Empire, there are three Jews who rise to places of leadership and importance. Daniel, first one, of course, he had been servant to the Babylonian king. When the Persian king took over, he became a servant to the Persian king. He was the second man in the Persian Empire, Daniel. And then there's this man, Mordecai. And Mordecai, you know, he's a Daniel type of guy. He is a Daniel, he has strong convictions. But Mordecai, and then the third one is Nehemiah. And you know, Nehemiah identifies the cupbearer as the king of Persia, but he's much more the servant to the king of Persia. He is a counselor and advisor to the king of Persia. So then, these three Jews. Now it's interesting that the Iranians are the descendants of the Jews today and their attitude towards the Jews is that of Haman. Death to Israel. Death to Israel. That's the situation that we're in today. Now a couple more things. Uh, five main characters in this book. We have Xerxes, Vashti, Mordecai, Esther, Haman. Ah, there's something missing here. Where's God? You know, Esther's one of the two books in the Bible where the name of God is completely absent. Completely absent. So God's not in the picture, is he? Oh, yes. He's in the picture. I have put down there the invisible hand. I have a book in my library which is by the theologian of note. You probably wouldn't know his name, but anyway. It's the invisible hand. That's the name of the book. It is a book about the providence of God. How God is the hand that moves in the book of history. God is the invisible hand here. He is not behind, but he is there. You know, when you think about the twists and turns of the book of Esther, the things that happen that just seem to happen. <coughs> hmm. Excuse me. That's the providence of God. I mean, that is God at work. You know, there's a sense in which uh, Esther, like the Joseph story in the book of Genesis, for example, is a preparation for understanding Romans 8.28. For all things work together for good to those who love God and the call according to his purpose. Now think about the third stance of amazing grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come, but grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Now, here's an interesting footnote. There have been many, many tyrants who wanted to get rid of the Jews. Hitler. The Holocaust. My, my, and there's Joseph Stalin. Stalin was 
fully as much of time as was Hitler. You know, he was our ally in World War II. Winston Churchill warned us about him, you know. He put to death more of his people probably than Hitler put to death. And he had a special hatred for the Jews. And in 1953, he was in the process of working on deporting all of the Jews to Siberia. But on March the 1st, 1953, he had a stroke, and he died the next day. The interesting thing about it is that on March the 1st, 1953, the Jews were celebrating the Feast of Purim. Not everybody thinks that Esther ought to be a part of them. Martin Luther, we mentioned him, and I have great respect for Martin Luther, but Martin Luther didn't like the book of Esther. It was too Jewish for him. You know, Luther, let's face it, he, uh, he was not a real friend of the Jews. I mean, he, he didn't have a great liking for the Jews. And this, this book was too Jewish for him. But... I'm thinking about, you know, this thing we had in the synagogue here not long ago where this came, guy came in and shot these Jews. And Russell Moore, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Ethics and his commission, said, you know, if you hate the Jews, you hate Jesus. If you hate the Jews, you hate Jesus. So we have a lot of reason to be grateful for our history and for our connection to the Jews, to the nation of Israel, and to God's program through the ages in choosing these people and in coming to the point where these people and the promise of God culminated in the coming of Jesus. And that movement of which we are part, Christian, Christianity, Christian. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this food. We thank you for Samson and the work that he's doing. We pray you continue to bless him. We pray that you'd be with Andy today as he ministers to his sister there in Georgia. And just be with us all and help us to do your will as we go from this place and as we go about life. And help us to be alert to the opportunities that we have to serve you that may never come again. In Jesus' name, amen.